corral around the kettle, you henpecked Declans. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. Got some new listeners this week because I did, I made an appearance on the Adam Buxton Podcast. Adam is someone who I've admired for most of my life because I grew up watching him on TV in the Adam and Joe show. And I had the privilege this week of being a guest on the Adam Buxton Podcast. So check it out if you haven't heard it. Uh, We spoke about how art movements like Situationism and Dada can have influence on comedy. It was very enjoyable. If you're a new listener to the podcast because you heard me on Adam Buxton's podcast, welcome, you delicious cunts, welcome. Um, What I always say to new listeners is go back and listen to some earlier podcasts rather than going deep into this one. Start off with some earlier Blind Boy podcasts and familiarise yourself with the lore of this universe um, rather than going conquers deep into this, you know. For regular listeners, what's the crack? How are you getting on? I hope you've been having a charming lockdown and quarantine, that you're not being too hard on yourself, that you're embracing the the current chaos of the universe, that you're embracing that which you can't control and focusing on what you can control. What I do have for you this week is some escapism, okay? I've got some real podcast hug escapism for you to listen to this podcast this week and switch off from whatever the fuck is bothering you and lose yourself in the universe of the podcast hug, all right? First, I'd like to read you a little excerpt of something. When I was a young fella of about six or seven, the neighbours had a yank cousin called Jake over to visit. He was sound enough and he had ties of the turtles, which I'd never seen in Ireland. One day I says to him, Are you going to the shop? You are. And Jake gets this pure bowsy look across his lip, like I was trying to pull the piss. Why are you telling me to go to the shop? I'll go to the shop if I want to, he says. I was only asking. I wasn't telling you to go to the shop, Jake. I said. I'd no idea what had gotten him upset. Now my da was over by the gate listening in with a smirk. Later on he says to me, That thing earlier with the young Yank, when he thought that you told him to go to the shop. Do you know why he couldn't understand you? And my da then explained to me a theory about the way Irish people speak English, a theory which was given to him by his dad. My granddad lived on a boreen below in West Cork that was on the way to a creamery. He was a member of Tom Barry's IRA flying column and would constantly watch and take note of whoever passed. Regular Irish people would traverse with their horses loaded with buckets of fresh milk and would come back with horses packed with butter in their saddlebags and this was a brisk fast paced road no time to stop and chat cause milk would go sour in the sun and butter would soften on a horse's shoulders it was for this reason that British soldiers would stop and harass anyone who walked the Bohreen to interrogate to rile to get horses pure greasy with sweaty yellow butter a small injustice a show of power and an opportunity to make a person emotional enough 
to lash out and say the wrong thing. My granddad would notice that when an English soldier questioned the man on the way to the creamery, no answer would be right or wrong. Any answer meant a long wait and your papers inspected regardless. Their standard rules of human interaction had broken down and to give an answer asquelga would be met with violence. So the Irish people figured out an in-between, a yes and a no at the same time, a quantum superposition of an answer, an answer that would cause the soldier to say, stupid paddy gibberish, and usher the person off before the butter melted down the horse's shoulders. And this here was my dad's theory as to why I asked the American, are you going to the shop you are? It was an absurd post-colonial way of arranging a question that had its roots in years of interrogation from the English. Now I'm not saying that's the case. This is just a story that was passed down to me. But as an adult, I learned that there was a name for how I speak, how I arrange sentences and for the words that I use. Hiberno-English, a resistant way of speaking the English language. A language we never asked for. As an author and a musician, I often find myself writing words as if they're music. I search for melody and rhythm on the page. Jazz and blues are African-American forms of music, born out of the resistance of African songs to European instruments. Musical notes exist in the African scale that don't exist in the Western scale. These notes are in between the Western notes, and these in-between notes give jazz and blues an emotional complexity that the traditional Western scale cannot deliver. The playful, bold and fluid way that Hiberno-English resists traditional English does the same thing. This improvised musicality to how we think and speak provides me with a deep literary confidence to explore the in-between, especially when the writing process presents me with resistance. So what that was there was, that's a foreword that I wrote for a book called A Dictionary of Hiberno-English. And Hiberno-English is the English that we as Irish people speak. We, we speak our own version of Irish. And that little story there, that's what my dad used to say to me. My dad used to say, we speak Irish in a confusing way because of 800 years of interrogation. And it's just my dad's version of it, based on what his dad told him. It's a folklore tale, I suppose. But the Dictionary of Hiberno-English, it's Gill Books, who are the book company that published my first two collections of short stories. This Dictionary of Hiberno-English was made by Dr. Terence Patrick Dolan, and he was a professor of English. And he compiled this massive dictionary of Hiberno-English words. Words that are English but uniquely Irish. And it was out of print, right? I, I ended up seeing it online about a year ago, two years ago. And going, fuck me, I want a copy of this book. And I couldn't find it online. And I went to Gill Books and I said, do you even have a copy of it? Because ye published it years ago. And they're like, we don't even have a copy of it. So I said to him, you need to fucking republish this book. 
this dictionary of Hiberno-English words that has... You need to re-release it. You need to get this fucking book because it's a shame for it to be out of print. Re-release the fucking book and I'll write the forward for it and I'll tell everyone on my podcast about this wonderful dictionary, the only one in existence, that has got thousands and thousands of, of Hiberno-English words. Words like queer, or which I explained a few weeks back, are words that I grew up using, like gaul, calling someone a gaul. Or a gaul. Sometimes the word gaul was a name for a fanny. And gaul, like... You're like, what the fuck does gaul mean? G-O-W-L. And we just thought it was a limerick word. It comes from the, the Irish word gaval. To mean junction. Or other words I would have grown up saying... I'd call the guards a shade. Or a woman was called a bure. And these words then, they come from shelta. Which is... The language of indigenous Irish travellers. So, this book, the Dictionary of Hiberno English, it's not my book, but it has my name on the front of it because I wrote the foreword. But it, the book is by Terence Patrick Dolan. Uh, it's in shops at the moment. Go out and check it out. Also, I don't profit from sales of the book. I took a small fee for doing the foreword to it, but mainly this is me just doing the right thing, putting my name to the book so that it gets reprinted. And it doesn't get lost, because that would be a fucking shame, you know? Um, because, I don't know, it just broke my heart to think that a resource like that is out of print. Do you know? You don't want to lose... Like, Hiberno, it's the way that we speak English. It's our way of speaking English. It's, it's a post-colonial way of speaking English, you know? It's the rose that grows from concrete. The Irish language was, was taken away from us by the British... And we were forced to speak English. And it's like, you can force us all you want, but we're going to find our own way to speak English. That's Irish. And that's what Hiberno English is. And finding out what words mean, you know, what, what, what does a word mean and why does it mean that, why does it mean the thing it means, is called etymology. Right? And my guest this week has just released a book which is about the the etymology as such of the Irish language of Gaelge. And my guest is called Mancon Magan. And Mancon wrote a book, 32 Words for Field. And what it is, is like, it's a meditation on the Irish language. It's a meditation on certain Irish words. I mean, it literally, it comes from the Irish language has got 32 words for field. And Mang Khan's book is an etymological meditation on this. Um, it's The book says, The richness of a language closely tied to the natural landscape offered our ancestors a more magical way of seeing the world. Before we cast old words aside, let us consider the sublime beauty and profound oddness of the ancient tongue that has been spoken on this island for almost 3,000 years. So... I had the opportunity to speak with Mancon and I recorded it. I'm getting really good at recording long distance chats and making them sound like we're sitting in a kitchen together and achieving that podcast hug. I'm really looking forward to showing you this fucking interview because Mancon isn't just someone who's interested in the etymology of the Irish language. He's also a travel writer. He's someone who 
has been all around the world and is, is a very thoughtful, compassionate person and an incredible storyteller. An incredible storyteller and he's got amazing things to say about his own life but also if you're into Irish mythology Man Khan has got some incredibly interesting theories about Irish mythology based on his understanding of the Irish language and he's got some theories about the roots of the fucking Irish language that are going to blow your head off. So without further ado here is my chat with Man Khan. So I suppose we'll crack into this. Um I wanna kinda I wanna kinda start on, on a an autobiographical level, right? What I'm I, we're here to talk about your new book, right? Which is thirty thirty two words for field. Yeah, but you but, know you you just said that you know the way you said I wanna kinda start with? But the yeah. way you said it made it sound exactly like a wanachoin, which is the evocative of my name. Which was beautiful. <laughs> it was like you, you you delved into the most beautiful Irish. So you know the way there's a, you know, when you're calling someone's name, there's like a Hamas or a Fodrick. But yeah. Mankhan is my name, or Manachan. But then in up in Donegal, it becomes a, a Wanachan or a Wanking, which is, uh, you didn't you didn't quite go that far. But it was a lovely, a lovely accidental Irish beginning to it. Um, one of your, your first, one of your first books, right, were you, the travel books. I want to, I want to, I want to speak about your travel books first, right? Like, what's the journey? What do you hope? Do you say to yourself, right, I'm fucking off to America for six months and I'm just going to write about what I see? Do you, do you have, like, what, what are you looking for there? Do you fear that you'll come away with nothing? No. So what happened was, like, I was one of these kids who would have, like, heard voices in my head when I was young. Like, I was this idyllic little what, kid. Literally, like, like, as in mental illness? No, or? not a mental illness, but nice voices. I mean, okay. you know, someone could have called it a mental illness, but it was never... I mean, I, I did go to a psychiatrist, but I think that was because I was just anxi- anxious. No, um, mm-hmm. I was... Like, I, w- I had this herb garden, so I didn't really fit in in the real world. But I just had these gorgeous, like, you know, reassuring wor- voices and words and dreams um, that I could mm-hmm. escape into. And that works out really well. Basically, like one of those spiritual kids. And that works mm-hmm. really well until you become about 18 or 19. And then, you know, suddenly the school tells you um, you're doing your leave insert and you're going to have to, uh, you know, get a job. and You're going to have to get a mortgage and, and do that. And I realized that I couldn't do that. There was no way in my life that um, I could, uh, you know, n- n- knuckle down like that. Because So it was either these voices giving that, that freedom that I had, or otherwise it was depression. And so at the age of about 17 or 18... Would you, did the voices mean, is that like a calling? You, you felt the sense of a calling? No, no, it didn't. It was just, I was really happy. I was deliriously happy and felt absolutely free. Ah, yeah, mm-hmm. so I just felt there was no stopping me. I was like almost angelic, do you know? And then this mm-hmm. is, and you can believe like that and you're in school, you can get away with it. You, I, luckily, I didn't get bullied. I was just ignored. But then when you when they tell you you have to go into the real world and, you know, do all these things, I thought I couldn't do that. And then depression comes. And you, you get that with a lot of these sort of, you know, dream-minded kids. So so the the constrictions of society basically did not work with your personality and, and the constrictions of society would bring on uh, a sadness. I didn't fit in, exactly. And so I, I fled. I knew that I'd end up in St. Pat's if I stayed in, in Dublin. And that would have been fine had I done that. But I realised that there was another way. And so I was... Um, my Because my family were Republican revolutionaries back long ago, mm-hmm. we used to learn... Um, they, yeah, they, you've got a fucking serious lineage, man. Your your, your granduncle is the O'Rahilly. 
Ex- my great granddad. Yeah, that was my great granddad. Great granduncle is the O'Reilly. Yeah. And then uh, Sheila Humphreys is your grandmother. So, and then my grandfather was director of arms, Donal O'Donoghue, for the IRA. Wow. So there was a rule in the, the rule in the house, which you always learned French and German, just so that you could import guns. If you, you know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. we've been doing that since about 1890. So luckily, I was brought up in the, I mean, I left school in the 80s. There was a recession. But because I had German and French, I was able to just go off to Germany and work in a, in a hypermarket. So I had money, money at the age of 18 or 19. And uh, I just went off. And then I could see with this money that there was trucks leaving crossing Africa, going across Africa overland. And it was going to cost three grand, no, 1,000 euros, 1,000 pounds for the year, uh, for six, sorry, for seven months. And I thought, this mm-hmm. is it. I will finally be free. I'm going un- to understand that the bigger world is out there. I'll escape the, the claustrophobia and the confines of this suburban Dublin world. So I am... Um, so that was that was the big idea. And I just went off to Africa. To, you know, I was so desperate. It was this. What was your first what was your first trip? Uh, like decent trip. Ab- like you went to Germany. But what was your first decent trip abroad where it's a, an artistic experience as such? You're going to you're going to not only travel, but experience and also journal your, your what's happening. Yeah. So I was 19 years of age. It was about a, two months after the German trip. And I get on this truck, this ex, this ex-army overland truck that's leaving London and driving the whole way to Kenya. So it's going to go through France, Fuck. France and Spain. It's going to go down through Morocco, through Algeria, to the center of the, of the Sahara Desert. But how do you even find that? How do you how do you even there find these, that man con? Yeah, there were these little ads at the back of the uh, of the guard of the British newspapers of the Guardian or the Observer, and they said like three grand for seven months. But I found a dirt cheap company that was doing it for one grand for the seven months, and they just put twelve tents on board. They put twenty people. They just bought the truck from the British Army for about seven grand. Um, put I think four wheel drive tires on it, put sand mats, and just sent it off across Africa. And and who else was on this with you? Who, who who are the type of people that want to do that? That's oh, a great question. They were not who I thought who I thought would be on it would be other free thinking, open minded people who yeah. wanted to explore the world. Other people who was who were as dreamy and idealistic and ridiculous as me. But uh, it turned out, and they probably were on the trip that cost three grand. But because I mm-hmm. was on this one grand trip, it wasn't them. It was basically the the dropouts, the dregs. All of us were just people who didn't function in society and people who wanted to escape. So there was one escape. Yeah, there was one yeah. bloke who had been in the British Army three times in Northern Ireland, and there was a rule that if you ever went back the fourth time, he, you know, you were you'd be you'd die. There was this superstition, and he had done things like in the first few days he'd be boasting to me, yeah, you know, we used to do this thing. We he had a great idea when Bobby Sands was on hunger strike, he would drive his uh, he'd get a he'd hire a chipper van and drive it up to the ventilation shaft in Bobby Sands's cell. So that so that Bobby would be here, it would be smelling like fresh fish and chips. Oh my god! And that, that was how did that feel to you, man? Like your grandmother went on hunger strike. Exactly, and I spent my nineteen the nineteen eighties helping my granny. She was still in contact with H Block and May's prisoners mm-hmm. during the eighties. So you know the the comms, these Rizla papers that were sent in and out of. She when her eyesight got you know bad. Oh, they used to write tiny little notes on Rizla papers and like hide them under fingernails or wherever you could ex- fit them. Basically. Exactly, exactly, swallow them or whatever. Yeah. Um, but my granny would get these letters from the from the prisoners and then she'd have to write back. But her eyesight wasn't so great anymore. So she'd like dictate the, the little letter to me and I would then write it in minuscule handwriting on the on the on the Rizla paper. 
Um, what, yeah. One question there, man, Con. So if your granny is like, so she's actively involved with communicating with, with the provisional IRA and provisional IRA prisoners, did that mean that you were being watched or, or for you to like go to London and fuck off to Africa? Like surely MI5 would be keeping an eye on you. Uh, I mean, I was so innocent and, and young and 19. So my granny was living with us in the in the granny flat of our house in Don, in Dublin. But she's being watched, surely. She's being watched. If, that, if you're, yeah, that house yeah. was being watched. And like, not only watched, but I remember during the last, the great maze escape, you know, the special branch came to her mm-hmm. door because she'd had, um, in the past, she'd had prisoners that were on the run, H-block prisoners that were on the run staying in the house. And it was sad. Like, my dad was this Fine Gael, quiet Fine Gael farmer from the, well, you know, he was a doctor, but from a farming background from Longford, absolutely Redmondite, a committed pacifist. But of course, he marries into this Republican family and this lovely house that he's bought, you know, in Dublin, he, and he, he pays for the granny flat. And now my granny has these, um, you know, these prisoners hiding out in it. Um, and at one time, my, my dad was incredibly peaceful and, you know, just a quiet... Did, did your quiet dad man. know that these, these men were prisoners? Yeah, oh yeah. The only time I heard my dad roar was he went downstairs to check on my granny once. He'd, he'd, tell, he'd say the rosary with her every evening in Irish. He even, mm-hmm. he even learned Irish just, you know, to, because the Irish was so important to the family. And he goes down and he recognises who's, who's hiding out in her coal hole. And he just screams, you know, not in my house, he says. Um... So yeah, he recognized the person from the news, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it wasn't good, like um, holy fuck. Yeah, it's like you know the way when you have a mother-in-law, you know, people say they have a problem with mother-in-law. Well, I mean, people have problems with mother-in-laws, <laughs> but if you're fucking, if if you're <laughs> Martin McGinnis or something in the coal bunker, yeah, different story, man. Exactly. So they're bringing over the wrong cake. Yeah. So that I mean, well, I'm getting distracted in one way, but that meant that my relationship with the Irish language was complicated. But I might go back to that in a second. But one yeah. reason that I so I fled because I said I, I was this idealistic person. I go off to Africa, but there's a few reasons why I'm fleeing. Also, because I realised this Irish language that I'd been given by my granny as this beautiful treasure and cultural sort of. Um, Air, um, heirloom actually had an agenda you know that it was in some way a political weapon of war so this would be why I would have I would have you know gone off travelling and I mean the Africa that Africa trip turned out terrible everyone like I mentioned the bloke who was the British army but everyone was worse there were people who had been embezzling people else who were running away from yeah. tax fights there were just the drags. And our first day, on our first day in Africa, we arrived in Morocco in the little town of Chefchouan, having driven through France and Spain. And um, some of the Bedouins come up to offer us, we sorry, we set up our, our tents, you know, the little old triangular mm-hmm. army tents, set a light of fire. Were, were there any hash smugglers with you? That sounds like a hash smuggling type of thing. Um, there was no... I, I, to be fair, no, I was the only one who got involved with grass smuggling later, but there were none. Okay. Um, no, they were all better. They were all fine in that terms. Um, but there was, uh, on the first day, anyway, this Bedouin came up to me and he said, came up to us all and he offers us firewood. And the others are just super disgusted and suspicious. And they just call him, a, they start calling him a raghead and said, get him away. All he'll do is dirty, mm-hmm. he'll steal. And I realized I was stuck on this truck for seven months with these absolute oh, racists. Who didn't? Who, you know, only had English, and like seventy percent of those countries were were um, were French speaking countries. So it was a pretty it was yeah. a pretty dark trip. Um, it turned out to be the best thing for me in my life. It, I had this utterly life changing experience when we got to Zaire, to the Congo, 
And mm-hmm. anybody that, you know, Zaire is the heart of darkness. It is where mm-hmm. Conrad, where Kurtz got stuck. If you're ever going to have... Roger Casement, man. Exactly, exactly. If you're yeah. ever going to have a life-changing experience, it'll be in the Congo. We arrived there and... Um, we had this woman who was driving us, Belinda, an amazingly strong woman. I call her something else in the book. Um, but uh, she, all she wanted to do was keep us alive. And every, she had done about 12 trips up into there, maybe, or seven, between seven and 12 trips. And Yeah, what's the danger like here, Mancon? Like, w- w- what's the level of, going into the Congo on the back of a truck, it, it, to me, I'd be like, that sounds a bit scary, man. So on all of her previous trips, someone had died. That's the level. One wow, per- like what type of death? Like, I mean, through disease, through b- being killed, through being kidnapped? Ma- mainly stupidity. You know, if the, okay. we are, as I said, the dregs of society. We're not the ones who know about Africa. We're not the, the ones who've read, who are careful. We're just people who are totally un- uncommitted, unkempt. So sometimes it was for... It was some, well, last one they were on, he, an old man just got a heart attack in the middle of the Sahara and they had to bury him there. Yeah. The time before that, she had begged them not to go on not to take out the inner tubes from the truck and start, um, you know, riding the rapids on a river and one person sma- smashed... <laughs> what type of request? Don't take the tubes off the truck and go onto the river. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they Anyway, me. they did and they smashed, he smashed his head open, he died. So Jesus. So, so or otherwise it was just malaria or um, Bilharzi or some disease. So the, the Did you get your, like, I'm trying to gauge, like, the level of innocence that you'd gone into this situation. I mean, did you get your injections? Uh, yes, I did actually. I never had injections okay. after that. I know that my other trips, but I did for that because I think they insisted mm-hmm. on it. Um, and so when we arrive anyway in Zaire in the in Kong in the Congo, she she makes one she has one other request for us that none of us will ever buy or take drugs because you know every single military dictatorship there all they're trying to do is get their hands on white people for some crime and it's just so easy for mm-hmm. them to find drugs on you. What, why is that? What What's the incentive for them to capture a white person with drugs? It's just, you know, they they have no money. They want to get money. And the best way of getting bribes out of people is, you know, to get someone with a crime. And they actually have a crime and then Fuck. you have to pay big big amount of bribes. So we have a 19-year-old Irish lad here. We're going to sentence him to death. And uh, now all of a sudden the UN is involved or something. Exactly, exactly. Wow, I never thought of it that way, man. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, so exactly. So we arrive in Bumba, in Zaire, and, um, uh, you know, now known as the Congo. And the first thing she's going to do is the only time she's going to leave us. She, every trip, what she does is she leaves us to take a boat in a village called Bumba to take one of the great river journeys of the world. It goes from Kissing, mm-hmm. Kissingani or to, from Kinshasa to Kissingani. And it's this huge floating market. And just this one tug, wow. an old German river Rhine tug and these steel platforms. And we slowly go down the way and there's no roads in this area. So all of the local tribes mm-hmm. people come out of the Amazon or sorry, of the of the equatorial jungle and they trade their crocodile skins and monkeys or whatever potions they have uh, with you. And she thought like this is a journey it's an experience you cannot miss. So she leaves us there that day. And uh, she leaves us just enough money and just enough, you know, malaria tablets and all to do us the five days it's gonna, we're going to be on the river before we reach in, in, um, in Kisangani, which was the old Stanleyville, from Leopoldville to Stanleyville. Mm-hmm. And, um, the rubber plantations. Exactly, exactly. The darkest, darkest shit of slavery um, yeah. and human trafficking. And uh, so that first day, we all, 
we all got, we rent out two rooms in just this old shack and we all sleep on the floor of the two rooms like at this stage we've been three months in a tent so so you know mm-hmm. sleeping on the floor of a floor of a room was luxury um and i went out and just to my utter just ignorance and stupidity someone offered me it was actually a plastic bag like a spar or a super value bag yeah. of cannabis it was a pure shopping bag of cannabis and i think it was, was like, it hash or weed it was weed it was weed okay uh, very heavy crystal weed like uh, but loads oh, of bush lovely. with loads of abbot yeah but loads of sticks and everything else to it but yeah. anyway i brought this home back to the back to the um to the to the shack we were in and by this stage a huge divide had had uh, entered the group those who never mm-hmm. wanted to talk to any african or engage were absolutely petrified and the others wanted to do a bit and we anyway the ones who were willing to to engage a bit we smoked some of that but it turned out to be somehow laced with something it just made us all hallucinate a lot mm-hmm. um and we woke up the next day uh, we conked out, woke up the next day, and everything we owned was stolen from us. Everything. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Now, now, any old Africa hand, anyone who understands Africa, realizes immediately exactly what happened. I didn't know this for, for weeks. You're in a military dictatorship. A military dictatorship, the military control everything. They see every foreigner. They see every person who comes in, particularly a foreigner. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who give you the drugs. Of course they are. The ones that are going to con- mm-hmm. knock you out, and then they're going to take all your money. But I didn't know that. So I innocently went down to the police station next day. Um, oh it, dear God! There was no police station. Turned out it was just a military encampment, and they were just stoned their eyeballs on on things. And this man Hercule, he I explained to him in French what's happened, and he says, "Oh, you know, this is terrible. It's a catastrophe. Don't worry, you will now see Zairean justice." And he went down to the local sh- sort of township and uh, the ghetto, and he picked. He just randomly picked three boys, dragged them back. He got his army, his soldiers, to drag them back, and they started beating them in front of me, beating them over the head with his the butt of his rifle. And again, I was this innocent kid. I had no knowledge how to deal with this. And eventually I begged Mm -hmm. him. I said, I don't want that. I just want to find our passports. But when they got sort of so exhausted from beating, they sent us away again. And we went back the next day and said, you know, have you found the things? And after the next day, they said, no. The next day, they said they need money. We had no of course. We had no money to. They said they needed, you know, money even just to get diesel to put into the jeep to look for the robbers. We had no money, but we begged the other ten people, you know, the the other half the group who hated us, to give us their money. And anyway, we got into locked into this thing that we were as between about a week without. Eventually, our money ran out after about three days. We gave it all to them. There was no signs of passport. And this is, you cannot move anywhere without your passport. You cannot go, you know, by this stage yeah. we had no malaria tablets. So we and I'm guessing there's no Irish embassy to call up or what's the crack? There was no nothing. No, the only embassy was down in South Africa at the time. Um, but wow. we, th- we thought, okay, we'll find another way out. But the, the and Are we talking the 80s here or the 90s? We're talking 89 slash 90. So the, okay. the first, the Gulf War had just begun. Okay, desert storm was going on. And so what happened was that all of the countries, about a week before this happened, all of the Arabic countries around us, Algeria and others, uh, Tunisia had all closed their borders. So no one mm-hmm. was getting through. Um, so actually, normally there would be another NGO or charity group or neither an overland truck behind you, but there was none of those. And then we also realized that there was no... Um, that there was no diesel in the country. Like, this is the last days of Mobutu, the dictator Mobutu's wow. regime. The entire country was bankrupt. Wow. So there was no money, there was no diesel, there was no way out. We were the, la- we were the only truck to have come through, uh, you know, out, um, foreigner truck to have come through in three months. And what emotions are going through your body at that point? Well, the weirdest thing was 
we were we only went there because Belinda had told us the river barge was coming the next morning and we were going to get on mm-hmm. that river barge for the five days. So next morning when, when we realised we were robbed, the other ten people go down to the river to get on the river bar- barge. But they realised mm-hmm. the river barge wasn't there and the river barge wouldn't come and it hadn't, it hadn't been there for two months because there was no diesel and it couldn't be there for another three months because the dry season had come early. So Belinda mm-hmm. had lied to us. She had gone down to the port okay. to check it was there and actually had abandoned us on purpose and fled with the truck. So it was really, really dark. So we couldn't even ask her for help. There was no way of, of getting any help. And did you, one little thing that's popping up for me too is when you spoke earlier there about there a divide is a margin between you and the group. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I find interesting is when I hear about, we'll say, the, these the English people not wanting to speak with the locals, being racist. Did, did you find, um, did anything colonial come up in you? Did you reflect on the fact that you, you don't come from a colonial culture and these people do come from a colonial culture and this is now being reflected in your actions or were they just a shower of cunts? No, no. T- I mean, I totally heard that. Like the pride they had about getting to Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania, the, the places that have been colonized by the English, it was okay. all about this idea that we are superior, we are a colonial race. Um, you know, and I mean, I was called Paddy and sort of, you know, there was all those yeah. sort of jokes about me drinking and, and things were, were there. It was just classic. That mindset that is in, uh, you know, a, lo- a large swathe of England was, was very strong. Because like the moment you said the Congo to me, the, like the first thing that comes up to my head, it's Roger Casement. Mm. And then I get this lovely feeling of Roger Casement was the one to highlight the crimes that happened here. So my association with some, with a place like that. I get this lovely wholesome feeling in my heart of the Irish the Irish impact on the Congo is is one of compassion and calling out injustice. Absolutely, absolutely. But we saw that at every single border we passed, we saw that because the 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 visas that the English people were having to pay were about two or three times as high as mine. In fact, a lot of my visas okay. were free. And uh, they, they, they never tweaked Because why the, the African people are going, this fella's Irish. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, where, yeah. wherever we, I went, I was just welcomed. It was, it was that lovely feeling you get. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that has... Le- Another thing I'd love to ask you about, Mancon, mm-hmm. is... So one thing that I'm fascinated with, and I have a feeling you'd know a good bit about it, are you familiar with Bob Quinn's Atlantean theory and the relationship between uh, Ireland and Africa? Historically, I am indeed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very rich. I'm fascinated with that, right? Um, it did your trip to Africa. Did you learn? What do you think about that? Can you explain for the listeners what the Atlantean theory of Irish origin is and, and reflect on it regarding your journeys to Africa? Yeah, one good way of looking at it is even a lot of people know, you know, that the Irish word for a black person is far gorum. And, yes. you know, there's a few different the, theories. The blue man. Exactly, the blue man. There's a few different theories. Some people would say because, you know, dove, black is, is always connected with the devil and is always dark things. And even a black horse would never have been called couple dove, but it was called couple down mostly. But there's mm-hmm. another theory for that. And that is the the Irish people would have known black people. Like there was there was mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a, a Berber, uh, no, what is it? A, a Berber monkey. Fort. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. They found that there's a skull of a monkey that, fucking 2,000 years old. That exactly, that's it, yeah. Um, which, you know, most likely either came from North Africa, could have been the one that came from Gibraltar, but it was from Africa. Mm-hmm. And then even in a bog in Offaly, there was um, 
a Bible with papyrus papers, clad in papyrus papers. Mm -hmm. So either that book was either brought from Egypt or at least the papyrus definitely came from Egypt. So we know there was contact. I mean, we just know that the roots were, you know, what it, what Bob Quinn taught, saw so easily was that there are these amazing trade routes. It is very easy to go from the west of coast of Ireland, from the Iron Islands, mm -hmm. down along France and Spain, and then right around into the Mediterranean where you get to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And even like in the Pharaoh's time, there was a canal that linked, before the Suez Canal, you know, that links the, the mm -hmm. Mediterranean with the Red Sea, there was, the, the Pharaohs had systems of canals. They didn't ever last very long because the sand would, would pile in again. But there were, there were ways of getting in ancient times to the Red Sea and to, you know, to get to the Far East. So we know the Irish people were amazing sailors. We know they were going up to the Faroes, going up to Greenland, maybe even going across to, um, to, 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 to North America. And how long ago are we talking here? Are we going back a thousand years, two thousand years? Yeah, so, I mean, I, let's say with that, with that Bible, we're going just 1,500 years. As you said, mm -hmm. with Navan Fort, you're going down 2,000 years. And after yeah. that, there's no sort of historical record, but we just know... Well, the next link you're going is, um, so, you know, the likes of the Passage Graves, Newgrange, you're going, yeah. you know, 4,500 BC. Um, what Bob Quinn showed so clearly, if you go to Tunisia and you go to Morocco, you're seeing those sta same standing stones, you know, these monoliths, mm -hmm. you're seeing stone circles, you're seeing the remains of Passage Grave type buildings and they are identical to the ones that are found in Ireland in Cornwall and in Britain mm -hmm. like yes it could just about be coincidence but it's a weird coincidence it seems there was this common culture so the Bedouins too and, and Quinn's theory Quinn goes straight Quinn just says the, that that Irish people are essentially African people that we, we he, he says that we don't come from Europe that we come from Africa via the sea exactly yeah um, yeah I, I mean and like, so, uh, you know, I've just done a TV series on, on ancient DNA. And, you know, what it's showing now mm -hmm. is that the original settlers of Ireland were dark brown skinned, brown haired and blue eyed. Now, that mix doesn't mm -hmm. exist in the world anymore, but it was an exist. It was a it was a people that were found in sort of Egypt and in the far in the Middle East. So they we know mm -hmm. for certain from DNA evidence that the first people who came here were people basically from Egypt and from and from the, the Middle East, you know, who'd come out of who Africa. took the Atlantic route. Exactly, exactly. So Bob Quinn is finally, because the thing with me and Bob Quinn, whenever I would bring Bob Quinn up with historians, mm -hmm. he was kind of rubbished as a kind of a fanciful thinker. Yeah, yeah, it was, and it was finally about four years ago. Michael Viney did a great article where he he just said, "Look, this is the proof. It has been shown by the latest sort of technology in in DNA sequencing that he was right all along." Um, wow. Yeah, and what's well, so interesting? So those first people who, as I said, were blue-eyed. What, and what other connections is there, Mancon? Is it, is it? I've heard uh, like Shano singing and similarities with Shano singing and and almost uh, Islamic call to prayer from North Africa and stuff. Yeah, and again, you know, it's hard to definitely prove these things, but just listen to the two. Listen to the Shano sing, and then, as you said, the call to prayer Arabic sing. It's these long cadences, this this sort of rolling on a on a vowel. And but there's words like the Irish for confidence or trust is munin, and if you mm -hmm. the, the Arabic word is munna, munna. The, okay. the Irish for knife is skian. And if you go to any Arabic country, you'll, they'll tell you it's either Sikian or Sikina or Sikina. But maybe most strongly, or Gara. Gara is uh, to cut, you know, in Irish. And Gara is to cut in Arabic. Kala in Irish for port. Khala is the Arabic for, for port. 
Um, but maybe mm-hmm. the most strongest of all is the shamrock, the, our ultimate symbol of Irishness, you know, shown on St. Patrick's Day. It's the shamrock or the, the shammer, but it happens to be the exact same word uh, in the Arabic word of shamrak. And it's shamrak in pre-Islamic mm-hmm. um, Arabic culture. In other words, in pagan Arabic culture, a shamrak was a particular tree-leafed plant, okay? A tree-leafed plant, and each one of the petals of that leaf represented one of the pagan gods. Like, are you going to say that's coincidence that it happens that pre-Arabic, pre-Islamic Arabic Arabic culture has this called shamrak, a leaf that represents the tree? We know tree was the key moment, key idea in pagan um, Irish or pagan early Irish and Celtic belief, and they happen to use the same word for it. Like... That's uncanny. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And it's nothing weird. We know that we were, everybody, you know, that we were trading people, that people migrated constantly. Um, I think, in so, you know, this book I've, I've written, The 32 Words for Field, I look at that, but the thing that blew me away most was the connections between Ireland and India. Like, they are mm-hmm. just so strong. And again, why would you have these connections? And that baffles me, like, that's fucking baffling. Yeah. That, 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 that's quite far apart. Uh, and again, we just need to get out of our mindset. We are so in the mindset of nationalism. In fact, we're coming to the last, to the death grasps of nationalism now. Previously, people were a migratory people who just moved and traveled depending on the circumstances. And it looks like mm-hmm. we're going back towards that. So it makes absolutely sense that all cultures would have been interlinked. But why mm-hmm. particularly was India and Ireland, why are the connections so strong? And it's really because... You know, we do. We we know that we're sort of an Indo-European culture. So our culture sort of came mm-hmm. from the basically the middle of Europe, or more towards the east of Europe, and the e- Europe yeah. to the Middle East. Okay, that area. Now that culture, that sort of Celtic culture or Indo-European culture, which our language is based on, was pushed to the margins. Okay, that's why the Irish language is still to be found only in the north of Scotland and you know the west of Ireland, and then places like Breton. Uh, like Brittany and uh, Galicia. Wow. But then that's... So you you think of it as something continually and consistently being pushed west. Exactly. Being pushed west and being pushed east. So that same culture, all of the same elements of it are still... Holy fuck. Yeah, they're still alive, which is why you will get, like, the Brehen laws are, like, identical to a lot of the the old Indian laws. Why the word Ara, um, the noble person, you know, Ara, a minister in the government, is the same word as Arya, a noble in in Sanskrit. Or why Brehav and and Brahman are the same word, the same root. Jesus. They they come from Brif, from mantras. Or even Idas, you know, Idachas or Idas, the learning. That's the same word as the Vedas, the Indian Vedas, which is, you know, the Indian lore, the central lore. And that Veda, again, even the word Druid, Dru mm-hmm. comes from Dru, an oak, and then Vid, which is the Veda, the learning, the learning that is connected to the oak, which is the central Holy core. Fuck. Like we are the same people. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, one thing, when I hear the term uh, Vedas, mm-hmm. that's like uh, one of the earliest religions that we know of. And it's also one of these religions that quantum physicists and, and the, the people who are at the cutting edge of physics who are trying to understand the nature of what reality is and like things like reality being a simulation, mm-hmm. they'll often say it has a lot of similarities to real early, early Vedic scriptures and their view of the universe. Yeah. Do you Have you studied or looked at any... I don't know, ancient Irish religious, but like pre-Christian Irish religious uh, views, are they similar to Vedic stuff? Is there anything going on there? 
So as you said, like there there are um, Brahmins, very early type of Brahmins, chanting in parts of Kerala and Tamil Nadu in the south of uh, of India, in the in the, in the mm-hmm. forest there, and the the mantras they have, the chants they have aren't words we don't understand them anymore they are pre mm-hmm. that they're almost what what linguists say is they could be the sounds that were based on the first guttural sounds that humans made before they de- um, developed linguistics oh, developed language yeah Fuck. now it's hard to find that same level of ancientness in in in, in, in irish or or even in the sounds that made up irish like one of the things that i'm trying to get at in the book is that irish like you know, we, we sort of know that the Celtic culture only arrived in Ireland. That culture, that Indo-European culture that went to India, yeah. came to Ireland. It only came here probably about 500 BC. So two and a half thousand years Here's ago. Here's a big question for you. Is it, when people say the Irish are Celts, is, is that naive or incorrect? Uh, no, it's correct. Um, so what we do know is that the people who built... So those first blue-eyed uh, hunter-gatherer people, the blue-eyed, really dark-skinned people, they're not us. Mm-hmm. They were hunter-gatherers who came here and they were wiped out, okay? Then mm-hmm. the next tribe... Oh, fuck, okay. Yeah, we killed... Well, we might have killed them or probably temperature, you know, conditions killed them. The next group of people were the people who built um, Newgrange and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the um, Nauth and Douth and Loch Crew and all of these amazing places. Uh, obviously, an incredibly sophisticated people who understood um, astro- astronomy. They're not us. Yeah. They're not us either. There's no. There's almost no DNA connection between us and them. They died out too. An incredibly complex community culture. That uh, I mean, there's a trace elements of them still in us, but not much. Mm-hmm. That Neolith- Neolithic culture. It only. It you know. There's only. It, there's not very much of it in our DNA. So who we are mm-hmm. is we're the Bronze Age people. The people who came after that. Um, and brought okay. we were brought farming and we brought knowledge of bronze from again the Middle East from North Africa area, um, and then with them and then we were mixed we were we were joined by these Celts who arrived so because they those people the Bronze Age people would have come like four and a half four thousand years ago, uh, no four and a half five thousand years ago then the the Bronze the the us the the Celtic or Gaelic people came two and a half thousand years ago so we're a mix between those Bronze Age people and that new culture that came in. But but you know as you say this idea of the Vedic and the that knowledge so in our yeah. language it's hard to get a sense of the sounds that came but definitely there are words in Irish that make it clear that our mindset before modernity took over totally accepted that sort of quantum nature that otherworldly sense of there being no um, no limitation to the physical reality like there's a word in Irish called kriher and kriher means a tiny particle. Or, or a spark of flame, or a light, or a tiniest portion of something. But it can also mean a subatomic particle. And it can mean mm-hmm. vulnerability, the vulnerability and the insubstantiality of solid objects. So when we look at the world now in our rational objective mind, our pre or post-Newtonian world, we think of everything as solid. But of course, a world, a people who believed in the other world, who believed in counter, which is this area, this region, this place, and altar, which is the other world, and there was always only a thin veil between the two, for them it was clear that things could look solid, but could also be utterly insubstantial. So, and quantum physics today will tell you that solidity is an illusion everything is made up of essentially waves quantum waves exactly exactly yeah so so you know crater can be a swamp it can be the trembling of the land it can be an earthquake it can be the crumbling surface of cloud land when dry after rain it's basically accepting that idea of quantum that the things can be solid and not solid at the same time oh the ambiguity oh it's beautiful yeah 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 gonna take a slight break from the interview now um 
to do our ocarina pause. I've got a shaker, a shaker and an ocarina this week. Each week we have a little pause in the podcast because adverts, advertisements are digitally inserted into this podcast by Acast. And I don't want an advert coming in and giving you a fright. So what I like to do is give you a little bit of a warning. So we're going to have a combined shaker and ocarina pause. So when an advert comes in, you don't get startled. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So that was a digitally inserted advert right there that was put in by Acast. Uh, I don't know what it was because they're algorithmically generated. So you, the adverts that you'll get are going to be different to the advert that your friend gets, depending on what you're looking for on your phone. That's how it works. Um, if you're hearing more adverts than usual, that's because of coronavirus. I think advertisers are putting more ads on podcasts because people are listening to podcasts more during coronavirus. All right. If I want this podcast to be hosted, I don't want to be hosting it myself. Not with the amount of listeners I have. If I want free hosting, then adverts are a necessary evil that have to go into the podcast. But outside of that, this it's a hundred. This is a one hundred percent independent podcast. No advertiser tells me what the fuck to do. And if I don't want an advertiser on this podcast, I can tell them to fuck off with no ramifications because this is. A listener-funded, 100% independent podcast that gives me full editorial control over what this is and what it's about. So all I'm asking is, if you're enjoying this podcast, right, it's like five hours of fucking content a month. All I'm looking for is, give me the price or a price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month and pay me for the work I'm doing at patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This is my career. It's how I earn a living can't do gigs because of coronavirus and you really are helping me by becoming a patron um if you can't afford it don't worry about it this is a model that's based on kindness and soundness people who can afford it become patrons people who can't afford it listen for free and by becoming a patron you're paying for someone else to listen for free if they can't afford it everyone's happy everyone gets a podcast and i earn a living fucking lovely patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast subscribe to the podcast like it tell a friend about it also join me on twitch 
Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night at 8.30pm Irish time. I'm on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. And I'm doing an interesting project where I'm making a live musical to video games, but also chatting. You can come on live and chat with me live and have some crack. All right, Yart, back to the conversation with Mankan. Um, what is there? So one thing that I've heard before is, have you looked into the influence of, of we say, psychedelic drugs like mushrooms and things like that on ancient Irish cultures? Like I've heard that if you look at the the art that's on the front of Newgrange, especially the the abstract art they were making, the lozenges and the spirals, that that was the type of vision one would receive if they were to eat the type of mushrooms that grow out of cow shit around that area. Yeah, so, and I heard Billy Mog Lynn discussing this with you, and he, yeah. do, he does it with such control, you know, because there's a degree... There's a degree of uncertainty about all these things, yet, and yet all are potentials. So, mm-hmm. what do we know? Like, we know, for example, that look, look at the look at the folklore. You know, the main idea of Finn McCool getting the the wisdom, the the the, the, yes, salmon, salmon, of knowledge. the salmon of knowledge. And how does he do that? He goes to Cunna's well, or there's a few different water sources that he goes to. He picks up the salmon, he burns himself. He sort of burns him. He cooks the salmon and creates a blister, or he burns himself. And that word for the blister is called bullegis bubble of insight or bubble of knowledge and it's also Fuck. used for the words of the hazelnuts that drop from this magic tree that is over Cullen as well and every when the bubble of knowledge are also it's called kno krihen which is sort of a uh, hazel of insight um, and it falls yeah. into the water and it makes the water magic and so when the salmon is in it, it makes the salmon magic and so when Finn yeah. McCool gets it he he either sucks, and so it's a bubble of knowledge, uh, a bullegis, or a quill shrivment, a hazel of knowledge, and then when he gets it, he gets another bubble of knowledge, the blister of knowledge, which again, bubble and blister is the same word, it's all bullegis, and that word bullig is also used for some particular type of mushrooms, because of course, okay. those two were known to impart wisdom, and to impart magic. And when they say wisdom, immediately what I'm hearing is... People who have psychedelic experiences, DMT, ayahuasca, and mm-hmm. then they come back from it with a greater knowledge and understanding of self and reality, as is often reported. Exactly. So are you saying that, like, you, you, you reckon there's a way to interpret the story of the salmon of knowledge, where it's like, Fionn McCool just did a lot of mushrooms and met the elves in the machine it's it's a shamanic trip exactly and like why is the bradon why is it the salmon the salmon is a speckled animal yeah what else and is salmons don't eat ac- acorns that's one thing i know the salmon's for the two here's two things that that keep me awake at night about that story mm-hmm. the salmon's name is finton which mm-hmm. is a ridiculous name for a fish and then secondly he eats acorns yeah but you know you do know what finn means in sanskrit and in early irish it means the wise one it means white it means seeing through it means seeing through the darkness to the light you know like bowen the bowen river you know the bowen river which is the white cow goddess the bowen river is a the bowen you know the river was so sacred that she was represented well the bowen or the bowinda was the most sacred goddess in early uh irish culture and she was represented in physical form by the bowen river and so she is so luminous. That's not the same cow that's up in the stars, is it? Exactly, exactly. So luminous yeah, cause, was she. Because Billy, who we were talking about there, yeah. he's got some stone in his garden or something, but up in the stars, using some ancient fucking Celtic archaeology or something, there's 
the Milky Way is the, was the Milky Way referred to as a cow or something in ancient Irish astronomy? You have it, you have it. So, so the Boyne okay. River, the Boyne River is so nourishing. So, the Boyne God is a mother goddess. Um, okay, the Boinda, mm-hmm. she's a mother goddess. She nourishes her people with her milk. Now, she is mm-hmm. represented in physical form by the river, the river of the Boyne, which nourishes its people with the water. Okay, and mm-hmm. so powerful is she that at night she shines up into the night sky and becomes the Milky Way, Balach Nabo Finna, the way of the white cow. Exactly. Now, so this this is what I this is what has me interested now. So the the ancient Irish are referring to this as cow as milk. How in English are we looking up at the Milky Way and referring it to the way of milk, the fucking milk highway? Isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely the way some trace of the knowledge gets kept, but then it sort of gets, you know, mushed up and confused. Uh, But just to finish that point, the final things I love about that is that if you ask people long ago about Nout and Doubt and Newgrange, the the prehistoric tombs along, Mm -hmm. along the Boyne, they will tell you that they thought that they were mirror image of planet constellations. So not only is the Boyne River being reflected up in the night sky to create the Milky Way, but actually some of those star constellations are then shine, are then being mirrored back in the land in stone and circular form. Um, into the ground and the final thing of that is Boinda the mother goddess the most powerful god she's the exact same god as Govinda as the Indian form of Krishna so go go Bo is a cow in Irish as we know Go is a cow in Sanskrit Vinda is a finder a looker a seeker it is like the same culture the same gods we are one and when you're when you're studying this stuff are you coming at this from the position... Like, you're not an academic, are you? I am not, no. I have no expertise in anything. So no. you're just a curious person. A curious person looking into this shit. Like, do you ever take this stuff and try and... Like, go to academics? Like, how... how these are essentially hunches that you have. But it, and it's overwhelming. Like, it's, it's phenomenal. As you said, it's like, how the fuck can this be a coincidence? But how does it go from this wonderful coincidence into being something that's accepted or has research put behind it and something that we that then becomes um truth Mm. what is that truth is not above reason but beyond it like so i as i said we started this with i was a disillusioned kid with a you know an over idealistic kid i went off traveling Mm -hmm. i went off to africa i went off to south america and i went off eventually to india moved into an old cow shed and like spent about eight months there going to to parts of my brain that one shouldn't really have access to i sort of dropped out tell us about that tell us about being in a cow shed in india and visiting dirty parts of your brain i will well well, i'll finish what i'm saying i will though um so and I wanted, I wanted to make sense of my life, you know. So after, after I came home from India, and I'll explain that, I built my little straw bale house in Westmeath. And I just, the world didn't make sense. I wanted it to make sense. What I want from this book I've written is just people are lost. People are disillusioned and disconnected. It just happens that our culture and our language and our old religions and beliefs can root us back into the world to make sense of who we are, of what we are in this chaotic, mm-hmm. chaotic, crazy world. So I don't want to engage with academia. Like I did a degree in UCD years ago uh, in mm. Irish. And at the end, I remember the professor said to me, I see a great career, career for you in academia. No one has done, no one has looked at the GH, you know, in the genitive of Donegal Irish. And that's mm-hmm. a world we don't need to cross into. Luckily, Billy Moglin can manage the two things. He can do academia mm-hmm. and he can do the walk the wild side. But what I want is to bring these ideas out because they'll nourish us. They'll make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, should I tell you about um, India? Go on. I'd love to know about India. What, like, because, like, 
actually, how did Africa end? How how did you like you were stuck in the Congo? Your passport is gone, mm. and now you're here on a podcast talking to me. So what what happened that that you ended up things working out all right? I got um so I, I, I you know that that main that five days or seven days in Zaire we went without food we went without water that was the best time of my life I suddenly realized I know now why I'm alive I felt more vibrant and more alive and I thought I want to live a life which is does not have rules or limitations that based on my greatest aspirations and that's partly because I was just you know a teenager with two big ideas but maybe and also we were slowly working our way through the bag of cannabis that could have helped just to, to, yeah. to, to alleviate the pain the hunger pangs but in, in that on Zaire, I got. I ended up getting um, bilharzia, which was no cure for. I had to drink the river water of the Congo, and it had. You got what? It bilharzia. It's this little sn- slug or snail that goes into your into your body into an orifice, and it slowly does you no harm for the first few years. But every year, it creates a little shell around itself, and it goes into your kidney oh, normally, God. or your yeah, and it creates a shell around your kidney, and eventually, it turns your whole kidney into stone. Basically, Fucking it's hell. like the what was that mythic the gargan from the uh, from the outside. It turns you into stone, and there was no cure for it at the time. But luckily, I came back, and my mum insisted I go to the tropical medical bureau, mm-hmm. and they they had no, a cure was invented about two months later, and so I was cured. So, oh wow! Okay. So then I finish. I go back to finish my degree. I go back and do two years in college, and then I go off to Africa. Sorry, to South America, and I ended up running. Um, uh, a hostel on the Ecuador on an organic farm on the Ecuador-Peruvian border in a place that was famous for San Pedro for this mescaline cactus mm-hmm. and the Israeli soldiers used to all come straight off after their three or four years conscription and come to my place to take this this San Pedro um, so were you running like a retreat where people could do San Pedro cactus? No, I was just I was just asked to look after the hostel and the farm, the the farm workers. Okay, and it turned out but that people happened to go there for San Pedro. Yeah, but we'd always tell them not to take that on the land, and we wouldn't give them inf- information about where it was got. But uh, mm-hmm. they would go off into the wo- into the forest. But eventually, people would have bad trips, and I would be called upon to hike up into the Amazonian cloud forest and take them back from the tree. They would either strip naked or throw all their money away. And then I'd have to ring up the Israeli embassy and say, you know, one of your kids has gone missing. It's meant ever since mm-hmm. I've ha- I have huge sympathy for Israel, just because those kids who become the worst aggressors of Palestinians, I just saw mm-hmm. they were these, they were mixed up teenagers, you know, who didn't know how to say no. And they were, their lives were ruined for, for the oppression and the brutality that they had inflicted. Um, to be institutionalized into becoming killers, essentially. Exactly. On un- un- unthinking killers, uncaring. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I finished, but I will, basically I was trying to f- search for something that made sense in my life in Africa. I, fa- I failed, I got distracted. In South America, I got distracted. And so eventually my sword ends up in India. What, what is the nature of a distraction for you? I, I believe that there was God inside me. I believe that there mm-hmm. was this cr- source of utter creativity and love. And, co- mm-hmm. and, you know, assurance. And so, you know, you, you just get caught up in conventional thinking or self-doubt or just, you know, distractions of, you know, I, th- I, th- I think drugs is a distraction. I think gossip is a distraction. Mm-hmm. I think loads of things is a distraction. I wanted to just get in touch with my, my, with my mind. So how were you for drink? How, what was your relationship with drink like? I know, pro- I, I, you know, I could, I just, luckily I can just drink two pints and I don't have a need to drink more. Um, okay, yeah. And I never drug, I never took huge amounts of cannabis or, you know, despite those my cannabis stories. Um, 
Yeah, and after before India, I ended up on a big organic cannabis farm. We're looking after the children in Vancouver in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So there was just because cannabis people who are who are thinking left field, who are marginal liminal thinkers, tend to be in that world. But I just wasn't. I wasn't yeah. particularly interested in the drugs. So and I went off to to India to India, determined to find a ca- to a, a cave in the Himalayas because I heard you know that's where the purest energy was. And someone told me, hold on a second, how do <laughs> how do you hear? There's a cave in India with pure energy. I'm off there. Like, what? What do you mean? Well, a, t- a tightrope walker, a French tightrope walker from the circus, I met in Colombia, and he told yeah. me about um, this. Uh, that was after. A, anyway, I won't get into it. You know the screamers in in Ireland. The only uh, the only primary cult. The primary. No, I don't. Uh, I'll tell you another time. I spent time with them in, in South America, but um, I was um. I, this man, this tightrope walker from France told me about this place called Papazali or Almora. And he said, if you go there, make sure you have a return ticket because otherwise you will never leave, he said. Make sure. Wow. And so I immediately I went to India. That's when I, you know, as soon as I got home from South America, earned another, maybe did six months in a supermarket in Germany to earn more money. And um, went off there and... Uh, I, of course, I only took a single ticket. There was no way. I did not mm-hmm. want to leave if I found this bliss. And I tried to find the cave. I couldn't find that cave or any cave. Um, this is, no, you'd know internet. This is this is pre-internet. Yeah, exactly. This was 96. So I suppose a few people had internet. So are you arriving in India saying a French tightrope walker told <laughs> me in South America that there's this cave and you had to rely upon the local people to, to know if the cave existed? Yes, and it's not. It wasn't so hard before the internet because of that backpacker system. Like I could still, I could find anyone in any country in the world. I know that, but you just go. You pick up a copy of Lonely Planet. You go to those places they're in. We're all talking about the same things. It's a total Mm -hmm. third. It's a different university. Like prison is a university. That backpacking circuit for new thinking and concepts. Like everything. I I have no mortgage. I live in a straw bale house. I am utterly free. All of that I learned backpacking. People tell you mm-hmm. the secrets of not, you know, I didn't want to get tied down to the system. I learned how not to to traveling. So all I need to do mm-hmm. is arrive in Delhi, talk to a few people in a, in a hostel. They'll put you on to someone else. You'll find someone else. Um, and I heard about someone who was, I heard about an immortal yogi who was 180 years living mm-hmm. in one cave. I was going to visit him. Um, and you just, you hear about people. So I go up to Almora. And at the same time, though, I have, there was an Indian man, it was a German man who knew India, and he happened to tell me that there was a leper station up there, and he wanted me to check on the leper station to see how it was. So in the end, I ended up, he gave me a job in the leper station as chief medical officer. I had no knowledge of medicine. So I ended up in Almora. I was med- chief officer of a, of a leper station, and although because I couldn't find the cave, I found a cow What were shed. your responsibilities? What, if, if you're the chief officer of a leper station, yeah. what are your responsibilities there? I mean, are you given any resources... I mean, leprosy is is, uh, contagious as well, isn't it? It is. It's pretty contagious, but it's very easy to cure now, thanks to a tablet invented by an Irishman in Trinity College in the 50s called uh, One Toad. It's now multiple um, multi-therapy remedies, three different types. He invented one. All you need to do is is take those tablets for six weeks and you're cured. The problem is no one wants to be cured. In India particularly, or in Africa, or in any other culture, in all of the holy books, leprosy is the disease that is mentioned most in the holy books so you are most likely mm-hmm. to get alms and charity if you have leprosy so mo- the lepers in india oh my god so you're, 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 it's, is it a system of poverty that's so great that if you become if you become a leper 
you might more likely get room and board or you're, food. You're sorted. Your needs are sorted forever. You'll always get alms if you're a leper. So, but but oh, um, wow. and particularly as complicated because in India, there's the karmic idea. You have been given leprosy in this lifetime. It is not up to you to um, interfere with the God's destiny and cure that leprosy. Mm-hmm. But of course... The German man who told me about this leper station, he had a rational Western mindset and he knew he could cure these people in six weeks. So all I had to do was once every 10 days go down to Almora and oversee the it was in Papazali, go down to Papazali and watch the people um, take the tablets, force, force them basically to take their tablets. And I mm-hmm. do that every 10 days. Luckily, they were far cleverer than me. They'd always either spit it out or throw it down. No one ever mm-hmm. got cured in my, in my whatever, seven months there. Um, but... Uh, so I do that. And meanwhile, because I couldn't find a cave, I found a cow shed. So I would. So once every 10 days, I'd go down to the leper station. And otherwise... D- did the cave ever exist? Oh, yeah, there's plenty. So Gandhi went up and meditated in a cave in this area. Like a lot of the great gurus went up to this area. It's an area... They, but did this particular cave that the French tightrope walker told you about, was that a real cave or was it like many caves? Um... I wasn't quite sure. People were telling me there was I could I knew of four different hermits and um, anchorites mm-hmm. who were living in different caves above me in the area. But I could find no cave that was free that I could move into. Now, here's another question I just want to ask you about caves and meditation. Yeah. So I went up to a cairn up in Sligo. Mm-hmm. Um, I, is it Knocknaray? Yeah. Well, Knocknaray is Queen Maeve's Hill. But it's the one, is it Cairn? Um, oh, gee, because, yeah. Uh, you know, it could be, it's not a uh, Caro. No, it's Caro, Caro Keel. No, Caro Keel and the I other Caro Moore. I can't think of the name of it. It's right. Ca- Caro Moore. That, that yeah, makes sense now. Right beside Knocknaray. Yeah, you can see that. And I didn't know much about Cairns, and I went. I was I was in Sligo on a gig, and I was bored, and I said, "Fuck it, we'll go up there," and I didn't know what to expect. Mm. And it was. I've got tinnitus now, but it was before I had tinnitus, mm. and I walked into the Cairn, and I experienced a silence that I'd never known. Like this freaky silence. Mm. And I asked someone there and they said, yeah, that they said that they used to meditate in there, that the stones are arranged so that you experience this extreme silence so that you can be alone in your meditation. Is that why these caves, is that what was special about these caves? Was it an auditory thing? That too. So, you know, and science is now showing that if we put the uh, the right resonance into our head and those, they say that La Croix and the other uh, caves in Ireland are tuned mm-hmm. to that resonance, that it actually you can track with an MRI machine that, that it changes the brain patterns of our brain and brings us to an okay. awareness that, that sort of alpha waves, more alpha waves than beta or something, so mm-hmm. that we have a grander awareness. So that is definitely an element. We can change our consciousness by vibrating in the right space. And all these caves seem to have been uh, created in such a way that it can do that. But I think in the Himalayas, the reason why... Like, I genuinely did. I, th- I, I mean, I think I got enlightenment or any wisdom I now have. I got it in India. And why does mm-hmm. everyone get it in India? Why did I get distracted? And, um, yeah, did I forget my search in Africa? Forget my search in South America? I got it in India. Some people say it's the rocks. There is some type of electromagnetic frequency in the Himalayan, the rocks in the Himalayas. And, again, you can now calculate that using uh, high, high-tech sensors. That, and it sort of facilitates the mind to open up different elements of it. And that would have sounded hippy-dippy, but actually mm-hmm. scientists are now proving this in MRI labs. You put different frequencies into the brain and suddenly different parts of the brain are tuned up and uh, open to things. So I think that's why the cave is I mean, so look, I'd be with it. I'm someone who meditates and mm. 
look, shit's happened to me during meditation. Um, awareness is, like, I, I, I haven't, I, I'm not someone who does psychedelics, but I've had experiences with meditation that sound like when people describe ayahuasca. As, just, um, I, I'd be meditating and all of a sudden I, I awaken from it with this deep understanding of oneness. I, re, I remember coming out of a meditation once and the first thing, as I opened my eyes, it was by a river. I saw a nettle and I just felt extreme love for this nettle. A, a, a real empathy and understanding that whatever the fuck me and the nettle were, it was the same. You know what I mean? Oh, beautiful. Yeah, 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 exactly. God. And you know what I mean? It's like I just sat down for 20 minutes and was with my own thoughts. And now all of a sudden, a nettle feels like a family member. And it was real. <laughs> Whoa, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I believe, and I know I'm distracted, that the Irish language also has that idea. Just in a single word, in may, many words. Like in the words like skim. So skim means a, a tiny f- speck of flour. But it also mm-hmm. can mean a tiny a piece of dust or any small particle. And it can mean whitewash on a wall. And it can mean um, a dust on a mantelpiece. But skim has also these. So you've got all these things. Basically, a tiny particle, again, like the it can be a subatomic particle. But mm-hmm. also means um, it means a fairy film that covers the land. And it means um, succumbing to the supernatural world through sleep. So one word wow. can bring a f- you... A fairy film. Is yeah. this like... Um, I had Eddie Lenihan on. He was speaking about like a goo that fairies leave in areas. No, sorry. I have the wrong word. I suppose a film... More a veil. More a sort of a... Go- uh, you know, that, that haze in the early morning that you see. Okay. That makes yeah. you feel that the world is... You're seeing beyond. It just seems... It seems that the edges yes, are a bit it's, mushy. It's the magical hour of the morning. The early morning when things feel magical and breathy. Exactly, and that you could almost pass through the physical into another realm. Exactly, yes. that thing, that thing, yeah. Um, but the cave, yeah. So, as you said, so Mike, I couldn't find a cave, so I found a cow shed. So what I would do instead is all day I'd walk in the Himalayas, where the, in the rhododendron forest. The rhododendron grow the size of trees mm-hmm. over there. And I'd grow there, and then I'd walk, I'd get back into my cow shed at night, because there was a, a, a man-eating mountain lion out at the time. So wow. he had, most of the mountain lions were high, high up in the Himalayas, but this one had come down a bit lower. I mean, I was pretty high, I suppose. Well, what would I have been about 2000 meters? Um, and so he'd come down and he'd get a taste of human flesh. So he had to be inside. Mm-hmm. But during those walks in the daytime, I was like you with the meditation. I was able to access realms of my mind that I had never bef- never done until, you know, since I was a, like a six-year-old in my herb garden mm-hmm. and haven't been able to since. I was just going out to places. But I have a sort of strong mind. I know I'm not going to get lost in them, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people with my sort of my, my, my mind tendency towards mind would end up in, in mental institutions because you, you go a bit too mm-hmm. far. I seem to be able to go to those rounds and then pull myself back. So I was going very far out into places. And but, but the only time I said there would I, Do you mean places internally? Yeah. Within well, yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really just gorgeous places where every just thing like you with the nettle, everything seemed utterly unite, united and there was this sense mm-hmm. of euphoria, this absolute love and white wash of white light and euphoria. Were you meditating while doing these walks? Were you conscious of your breathing, things like that? No, no. In fact, I've only started meditating during COVID. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you mad cunt. I know, but just because I had that access, I suppose. But my only problem yeah. was once um, oh, I was doing as well, I was following Ayurvedic medicine. Well, I was only one yeah. strand of it at the time, which meant drinking mm-hmm. 
my own urine, copious amounts of my own urine. Fair play to you. Not anyone else's, luckily, but my own. So w- w- when I went down to the, the to, to Almora to the leper station every ten days to to you know to to check on the lepers, I'd also write a, a fax home to my mother. I was sort of a dutiful son. So I, and my dad had just died. How are you getting on, man? Drinking my own piss. I'm scared of a mountain lion. That that was it. Exactly. But that, that wasn't work. But no, I wanted to reassure her. So I didn't say that. Instead, I said, Mum. Has, has Granny got any more IRA <laughs> prisoners in the house? <laughs> no, I wanted to reassure her. So I said, Mum. In Irish, actually. But I said, you know, everything is brilliant, Mum. Don't worry about me. Everything is one. I see that we are mm-hmm. all unified. Every leaf and every raindrop is one. And there is a there is light connecting all of the universe. And all we are blissfully happy. And there is gorgeousness. And there is only, you know, unified connection. So she believed that her sort of overeducated youngest son had gone round the twist. Had, had gone mentally mm-hmm. insane. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people would say I, ha- I had. I, I'm convinced I hadn't. But she sent my brother on this mission of mercy to rescue me. Now, my brother, oh my, my brother was a very serious, pragmatic man. He was in the film industry. Yeah. And this was he was working in the this is 95, 96, the years that far and away were made. He was locations manager on that and on Devil's Own mm-hmm. with Brad, Brad Pitt and on all those big movies. So my mum says, go over to India and rescue Mankhan. He's lost the plot. So mm-hmm. my brother was busy with all his things. He didn't want to do that. But at the same time. He really could see himself, you know, he was just locations manager in the big Hollywood movies. He wanted to direct and he thought that he yeah. could direct a TV series. And 1996 was the year that TG Carr, Fianna Fáil announced they were going to set up TG, uh, TG Carr, a brand new Irish okay. language television station. So my brother hatches the plan that he's going to direct the, brand, the first ever travel st- uh, st- uh, channel in travel program in Irish and I'm going to present it. So he comes out. Fucking hell. And he's very serious and pragmatic. So he comes out in a full safari suit as though he was a director of, you know, Born Free or something with a load of heavy duty equipment. Actually, it was the very first edition of a Sony, H, uh, Sony, no, it was a HD, no, Sony digital camera. Um, digi, wow. whatever, those little digi tapes. And uh, it was not HD, it was over digi. And um, one shift digital camera. And he convinced Sony that he was going to make the first ever TV program with it. He comes out, comes out to Delhi, then goes up to Almora, then finds his way to Papazali and asks in the local shy shop, where is Moncon living in the, in the cow shed? And he finds me and like, I'm not in a good way. Like I am, being, you know, I've been drinking my piss for a long time now. I am far out in sort of glo- <laughs> glorious parts of my brain. And he, he's just disgusted. I'm wearing like dirty old T-shirts and sweaty, smelly sweatpants. And he's just like, and my hair is a mess. And he says, Malkan, we're making a TV program. I have not wasted my time. I haven't come the whole way out here and got this gig from TG Carr so that you can screw it up. So he drags me down to Almora. He washes me. He gets my hair cut. He buys me a new shirt and uh, trousers and puts me in front of the camera, his little new digital Sony. And of course, I'm only too happy to be put in the camera because I have loads to tell yeah. people how we are all unified and how drinking piss will cleanse your insights and how everything is one and everything is gorgeous. And... <clears throat> Ruan watches this, my brother watches this, and he turns off the camera. And it's just, I can see the sadness, the, 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 just the break and broken heartedness. He's put so much work into this. He's convinced TG Carr, who have no idea who he is or who I am, that this is worth taking a punt on. And I'm about to screw it up. And he, he screams at me, he roars at me. And he says, For fuck's sake, Monk, I have not come this way. You better get your act together. So he turns on the camera again, and I just spout my beautiful new age rubbish again. And so it goes on for weeks. He slowly, over those weeks, tells me what to say. He threatens me to what to say. And okay. I, I just have to say, we're in India now and it's lovely and we're starting our journey. 
And if you see that program, I might put a clip of it up on the internet. You, you, you see this kid who is just, God love him, he's just lost. He, you know, he could easily be an institution. His, his eyes have that mm-hmm. faraway look. He's just like so many, you know, young backpackers you see. Um, but luckily, Ruan, my brother, taught me to be pragmatic, that you cannot go that far out, that you need to find a way of communicating ideas. And ever since that, mm-hmm. that was 96. Every year since then, we made a, a television documentary for TGKR in China, in Africa, in South America, in Greenland, just all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, until eventually then Hector came along and Hector says, like, let's make a program where you don't have this like idiot pontificating to camera the whole time. And he made a program that actually was was uh, sort of funny and uh, comedic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then... But, w- one thing, I'd, one little question there, right? Because yeah. you, you started off by talking about when you were a kid and hearing voices and stuff, right? And I had on this podcast uh, a psychiatrist called Dr. Pat Bracken, mm. who is a psychiatrist, but he's also very anti-psychiatry. Mm. And he is very interested in, we'll say, hearing voices, but looking at it from different cultures. He says that hearing voices in our Western medicalized culture is immediately seen as a bad thing. But there's other cultures around the world where hearing voices is not stigmatized and in these cultures where where hearing voices isn't stigmatized the people the voices that people hear are actually quite nice but in societies like ours where it's medicalized and and said that it's a bad thing or labeled as schizophrenia the voices tend to be terrifying wow how do you feel about that i mean because you you seem to even to the point he talks about there's there's now a movement Mm. where people don't like to be referred to as psychotic they don't like to be referred to as having schizophrenia they're simply part of a community that hear voices and this is how they live and this is their life how do you feel about that um is is it ringing true with you yeah so because i sometimes talk about these experiences to people and they often think okay were you schizophrenic or were you yeah i just i never identify i I really don't think i had anything like that because i had just all they were just such loving voices but what you're saying I like is the fact that so many people have so much tension in them now and so much um you know their 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 voices are so full of paranoia and darkness is it just mm-hmm. a reflection on a society that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. like if you're living in a society that really looks like it's going to commit suicide then I suppose it's natural that some people would have those darkest thoughts mm-hmm. so let's say back to what you the psychiatrist said um, yeah, we know. Yes, definitely. Other cultures accepted that um, that there were you could hear you had access to other voices. But it just happens that so too did our culture. So too did the Irish language. You know, every single traditional story, folk story, it's about an encounter with the other world and that other mm-hmm. world. Like, okay, this is something now. So the she, you know, the she yoga, the she, the fairies. She mm-hmm. means. Um, she used to mean a fairy mound, okay? You know, she Gwiha, mm-hmm. a gust of wind that was actually the fairies. But the, she was a fairy mound and then it became the fairies where they lived and then it was the fairies themselves, the she or the shioga. Now, the she is the same word as um, as the root for shihan, for peace. In fact, in Scots mm-hmm. Gaelic, S-I-T-H is she, uh, fairy, and S-I-T-H is peace, the same word, okay? Now, the mm-hmm. old way of spelling she, fairy, was siddha, S-I-T-H-E. Now, Siddha, that Irish word, the old word for fairy, is the same word as Siddha in um, Sanskrit, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, and in um, Zoroastrianism. Um, Basically, Mm -hmm. Siddha is an enlightened being. 
Okay, so you suddenly realize these fairies actually are enlightened beings. It's the same word. There's no linguistic, um, you know, uncertainty about this. A a she is the same word as Siddha, an enlightened being who, you know, a being who would have stepped out of this is a human being who would have taken a step back from the small mindedness of of reality and realized that there was a bigger dream and a bigger vision and connected themselves to something grander. So let's say these fairies, and where do the fairies live? They live underground beside humans, but they live nearby mm -hmm. and they are obsessed with us. They're constantly looking at what humans are doing and laughing at us and telling us, what do they tell us to do? They tell us to celebrate more, to feast more, to play, to dance, to party. So, and they, and whenever we tell them, whenever we go to them with our small scale concerns, as all of the stories do, you know, you go when you're in time of worry or time of heartache and they laugh at you and they laugh at your obsession with time. So what do we know about the Siddha, these unlightened beings, the fairies? They, they, uh, they do not accept time, which now we realize is not mm -hmm. true. They want us to have a bigger vision and not to be so locked up in our small mindedness. So actually, our culture from the very beginnings, from every single folk story you were told in school, is only trying to tell you one thing. You can root yourself to nature and you can root yourself to a world that is beyond the physical, to a world that is nourishing, where there is advice and guidance um, there. Even even like a word like um. Pukog. Or Pukog is a, um, uh, a, a blindfold, okay? It also mm -hmm. can mean a goat muzzle and it can mean a tin shield for putting over a, a, a thieving cow's eyes. But, also, but the main meaning sort of for, for Pukog is, um, I don't have that quite right, Pukog, it is almost Pukog, uh, I'll tell you it in a second, is it's, it's an otherworldly being that can, that can appear invisible in this world. An otherworldly being that can be uh, a pukin. Sorry, pukin is the word. Mm -hmm. You still use it in English. You know, put a pukin, a, a blindfold over someone. Um, so it's an otherworldly being that can appear invisible in this world. So we knew our ancestors, even our grannies knew that there were people who could jump from Kriher or from Counter, which is this region or this place, to alter the other world, and that there was amazing reassurance to be got from that. And I would just all of our problems could be solved if we were if we expanded our awareness to realize that bigger picture we would no longer have the anxiety and we might have answers to a deeper connection to nature to as you said that belief that we are one with the nettle it is there to heal us and we are there you know to be part of it do you um <clears throat> one thing i found really interesting there is when you were speaking about people speaking about interactions with the fairies and the fairies laughing at them like literally that when i go onto the internet and i listen to people recount their ayahuasca or dmt trips a lot of people report visiting uh, somewhere where time doesn't exist reality doesn't exist and they meet these beings that they can't describe they're they're crystal beings and they basically laugh at them and they have fun with them like do you the similarities between modern day ayahuasca dmt trips and what you've just described with ancient irish fairies do you see a correlation there Absolutely, yeah. And to get back to a point about that salmon that we didn't make, what do we know about a salmon? Yeah. A salmon is speckled. What else is speckled? The fly agaric mushroom, the Amanita muscara mushroom. Um, I was thinking speckled dove ecstasy, but humans make them. <laughs> no, the fly agaric mushroom. And again, what do we know about that? I, I have a chapter in my book about the reestra. The reestra was Cúchulainn's warp spasm. When he would get totally yeah. furious or angry, he would just have fire and flames shooting out of his top of his head. His eyeballs, his pupils would dilate to the extent that they were yeah. popping out so much that it said uh, like a, a heron could bite it or a crane could bite it off. It's a perfect uh, example of that 
mescaline-induced, um, you know, transcendental state, which which you don't get from magic mushrooms. You get from fly agarin. Also, those Vikings, the what, what were those Vikings called who used to take mushrooms? The berserker. Yeah, the berserker. Exactly, exactly. They used to take fly agaric mushrooms and it would make them incredibly angry as they went into battle and they went berserk. Exactly. And the Sami people still do. But you know the way there's some, there's some the fly agaric mushroom needs, needs to be taken with great care. Um, I, yeah, because it's poisonous, isn't it? Sometimes. I, I have a podcast at the moment, actually. And in one of it, I talked to Courtney um, Ta- Courtney. Taylor, a great uh, expert in Wicklow, a mushroom collector, who really mm-hmm. actually demystifies the the poisonous element of um, the of the fly agaric mushroom. And I also in that pro- it's called the Almanac of Ireland. But also I talked to Billy McLean, who tells me about mm-hmm. that Gloss Gavin, those magical stones outside his land. Um, and mm-hmm. also in that one, I post myself into a cave. Um, which is the Cave of Transformation, Aonagat in Roscommon. And I go down there for seven hours. Well, no, I don't do seven hours in the end. I do about three hours um, to see what transformative. So the Aonagat was the, the, of, the Cave of Transformation in in the time of Kulna and all the old myths where someone would go mm-hmm. down and they would enter the other world. Um, oh, why did I get onto that? Oh, yeah, Berserker. So the, um, the Fly Agaric, um, you know, not only that, but the Sami culture uh, of northern Lapland still take the Fly Agaric and the reason, so it can be slightly poisonous. It's not as poisonous as we think, but um, it, it relaxes the muscles. And so if it goes out, if it touches the heart, it'll relax the heart. And, you know, the heart might, you don't want your heart, heart to relax, you know, because that means it stops. And so what the Vikings used to do and what the Sami people still do is they let the deer or the reindeer eat it first. And then they drink the urine of the reindeer. And then the masculine oh. element will have passed through in its pure state without the poison. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But that speckle, the fly agaric, it's a classic mushroom you've seen. It's in every fairy story. You know, it's a red mushroom with yeah. the white dots. And whenever you come across speckled in any of the old folk, to- folk stories, and you will come across it everywhere, that's what it's a ref- That's potentially what it's a reference to. It's a hint that to access this other world that we're talking about, the fairies with the, or, with Cook, or with Finn McCool or the magic mushrooms or the hazel of insight, they are, um, you can get to those through the fly agaric. Wow. Mm. Um. So one last question, because I'm time conscious now. I know you need to fuck off. Very good. Um, the I, I need to ask you about your sustainable living. I need to ask you about the the house that you live in, and you live in a passive house. Is that correct? No, not really. So I didn't want a mortgage. So I came when I came back from Africa, South America, and India. I had seen people there build their houses out of what was around them. So in Bolivia, they use reeds. In Tibet, they use stone. In Africa, they use mud. In India, they use straw, whatever. So I came back. I had my granny, the Republican Revolutionary Sheila Humphrey. She died and left me ten grand. So in 1997, uh, I came back to Ireland and had my ten grand and looked for anywhere I could buy and find ten acres. And luckily, Westmead welcomed me in. And I looked around and thought, what am I going to build my house out of? And there they were growing barley straw, barley. So mm-hmm. I bought myself 200 um, bales, straw bales of good oaten bar, of good yeah, barley straw. And uh, just used those as Lego blocks, like as big Weetabix to build my house. and put a metal roof mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have planning permission. And I lived in for six years. I told the planners that this is what I'm building. And then you can, I'll apply for planning for the, for the next house. So they gave me, in their wisdom, Westmead County Council, in their just kindness, they gave me permission for the straw bale house so that first house cost me five or six grand i lived in it for six years and then i built the second house for 26 grand it was meant to be bales of straw but in the end i, I got scared and i put concrete block in the in this core of it mm-hmm. and i put grass on the roof just because i didn't know how to tile but i knew how to just wheelbarrow a load of mud up onto the roof 
and um, then I put mud and straw on the outside of the concrete because it looked very angular. And I built that in 2002 for 26 grand and I've been living there ever since. Um, and just in recent years, I've wanted to I wanted to create my independence just because I don't have a great income in any way. You know, I do a little bit for the mm -hmm. Irish Times. I write books, but those, God love it, those travel books I wrote about all those trips, you know, they don't sell much. Um, mm -hmm. So I then I started growing my own vegetables. Oh, no, first I think I did, I planted six acres of the 10 acres in oak wood. I did that 20 mm -hmm. years ago and God, it was slow, but now massive oaks. I have these big, big oaks, 20-year-old wow. oaks. And then I got pigs. I got Tamworth, the old native pig in and uh, I got though put the pigs in and then I now have hens and I have turkeys and I have whatever right five beehives and I have so are you living off the land as such are you trying to are you living in a way where, where you don't need money for a lot of your needs exactly yeah so I, I put my I put 4.3 kilowatts of, of solar panels in so I'd have electricity most of the time I put I first thing I did you know 23 years ago when I moved here was put up the poly tunnel um, so mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean I, clearly things like you know lentils and flour I'm still buying in um, I'd like to I'd like to grow enough, you know, grain just for my own uh, bread. But during COVID again, I am growing so much more since COVID because all of those things, they take up an enormous amount of time. Um, yeah. So none of them I would have been doing to the extent, the scale I wanted to until this year. Thanks and are you preserving vegetables and shit like that? Are you canning things and, and, and stuff? I am, exactly. I'm doing that. And again, something I'd never done until this year was save my seed because it was so easy. <laughs> save, you know, herbal seed, flower seeds, because it was so easy to just, you know, go online and order packages. Yeah. But during COVID, they were sold out, you know, and the great brown envelope seeds in Cork and seed savers in Clare, they were all saying, we have none left. Save your own seed. Like the shops were actually yeah. telling you, don't come to us, do it yourself. So that yeah. was a big learning experience for me this year. The power of being utterly independent means controlling your seeds as well as your irrigation, your electricity, mm -hmm. your food source. Yeah. So I leave you going now, Mancon, right? Thank you so much for that. That was an absolutely fantastic chat. It was so interesting. Um, I'd love to have you on again, man. I'd say we, me and you could talk about fucking anything for a long time. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I, I genuinely, I'm, I'm just so bowled over by the work you do. Oh, thank you so much, man. Slow. Thank you. See you now. Slow. All right. I'll bye. see you, man. Bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Oh, that was absolutely lovely. What a wonderful conversation that I had there with Man Khan. That felt fantastic for me because I'm fucking locked up with coronavirus, so I'm not seeing a lot of people. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to be back next week with... I've got a couple of hot takes on the pot, lads. And I'm trying to decide which one I'm going to give you. But I'm going to have a hot take next week. Um, and I'm looking forward to, get to to recording next week's podcast. Mind yourself. Have some self-compassion. Have some compassion for other people. And like I said at the start of the podcast. Don't be stressing yourself out over things that are outside of your control. Focus on what is inside of your control. Alright? And you'll be grand. Yart.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.